This is Paris, and I'm an American who lives here. My name's Jerry Mulligan, and I'm an ex-GI. In 1945, when the Army told me to find my own job, I stayed on, and I'll tell you why. I'm a painter. All my life, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And for a painter, the mecca of the world for study, for inspiration, and for living is here on this star called Paris. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Podcast Goes To, a weekly podcast where we randomly select and discuss an Oscar-nominated movie. This week, The Podcast Goes To, An American in Paris. I'm Matt, joined by Bob. Hi, Bob. What's up, dude? Nice to have a uh, nice recent film comparison to last week. Jeez. This one had color in it and had dialogue. I never thought I'd be so happy to see color. <laughs> so how was, how was your week? Everything going well? Just super busy. In fact, I just watched the movie right before <laughs> we started report- recording this podcast because <laughs> I didn't have enough, <laughs> enough time to... Uh, to watch it earlier so uh it's really fresh uh i might not have had a lot of time to think about it though (laughs) great another week with no deep thoughts from bob this is another kiss of the spider woman week how dare you (laughs) Uh, i was thinking about kiss of the spider woman because i decided that i just started i started a list of my own little tropes and so far i have uh the male lead the white lead, the happy ending, the war theme, the love story, and the main character death as our tropes that I'm tracking. And we are on a six-week streak of uh, white lead in our movies and fourth straight week of a love story. Well, isn't that dandy? I think that might uh, continue being a streak. I'm trying to think of when it became common that there were that there was diversity in movies. Like five years ago? <laughs> Just about, yeah. Are we going to have to wait until we get Moonlight or Beasts of the Southern Wild to get someone other than just an average white person leading up a movie? (laughs) Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Before we kick things off and talk about An American in Paris, do you have any cleanup from last week? Oh, God. We have to revisit? (laughs) (laughs) You you should have called it sewer cleanup, right? Because he was a sewer cleaner. (laughs) (laughs) Or I guess a street cleaner. Let's call it street cleanup this segment. I can't I can't think of anything that we got horribly wrong and no one can fact check us on this because I'm sure none of our listeners have have watched whatever that movie was. What was that what? movie last week? 7th Heaven. Yeah. One of my buddies said he hadn't listened to the show because he was waiting to he was waiting for us to talk about a movie that he'd already seen because this doesn't make any sense to me. He said, because I don't want to spoil any of the movies. I said, well, you could watch the movies and then come and listen, or you could just admit to yourself that you're never going to watch seventh heaven and just listen anyway. But it it sounds to me like he just is trying to make an excuse to not listen to the podcast. And he's a really (laughs) shitty friend. I will say, though, that we do have one listener who left us a review this week, so we'll get to that. But he is so devoted that he prioritizes watching the movie every week before he listens to the podcast. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Can you just replace that person with me on the podcast? (laughs) They sound more prepared than I am. Well, he skipped Seventh Heaven, so I can't blame him for that. But that's pretty badass. I mean, he's someone who doesn't really... He's not really exposed to all these Oscar movies. He's not really that interested in them, but he cares so much about the show that he does that. So shout out to him. In well, fact, at least someone cares about the show because we all know I don't. Bob. <laughs> it's been a long week, all right? You know, it's me <laughs> some slack, Jack. <laughs> well, um, speaking of Nate, shout out to Nate Vernon Follett, who left us a fan review on the Facebook page, which we created this week. He writes, I don't know how I would get through a Monday without hearing these two talk about a cinematic classic. I am a listener for life. Thank you, Nate. I really appreciate that. That's a lot of pressure. I guess now we have to make sure that we put one of these out every week for the rest of his life. (laughs) Well, we're good for uh, like another 10 years at least. Did you do the math uh, for all the movies that will be nominated each year while we're still doing the podcast? No, I have I have not done 
that extensive research just yet. Maybe for next week I'll have that ready for us. But just in case we run out of movies, I think we should start planning our next show. Ooh, give the people what they want, like a little more Matt and Bob on the side. I know everyone's anxious to hear what comes up next from us (laughs) 13 years down the road. A podcast definitely does not go to these (laughs) movies, or or would it not even be movie-related? I don't know. Maybe movies won't even be a thing by then. Ooh. And I'll be unemployed. (laughs) Well, let's hope that never happens. Uh, We also have to give a... No movies or me being unemployed? Well, you being unemployed doesn't really affect my life. If we run out of movies to watch, I don't know what I'm going to do with my spare time. Yeah, that's true. But I do have one job for life. And you know what job that is, Matt? Being a dick. (laughs) Yep. I did have something to say, but I'm just going to commit to that answer. (laughs) Well, now I'm curious what you were going to say. Well, tune in next week to hear what I have to say. (laughs) Find out what Bob will always have a job in next week on the podcast goes to. I also like to thank Daniel Larsh, who gave us five stars. He didn't leave a review, but Daniel Larsh holds a very special place in our hearts because... Bob recorded his first show in Dan's apartment in L.A. That's true. And he is a filmmaker as well. And I was nervous about trying to set up the audio and everything for the podcast right. And I was raiding his closet for gear (laughs) while he was at work. It's like, do you have XLR cables? Ooh, a Zoom recorder. <laughs> what else can I, What else can I steal? I stacked like all of his like old books on uh, for the mic to be like the right height. <laughs> anyway, yes, XLR cables, things you would only find in a filmmaker's apartment or a film professor's apartment. We also have a review on iTunes from our good friend Keith Brown, Cabro Films who has been listening to the show. We were not sure, but he's become very vocal about his support for the show. And after giving us a five-star rating, he writes, This is my favorite new podcast. Bob and Matt crack me up. Although I do not approve of watching films on airplanes like Bob did with The Darkest Hour. Maybe he does listen. (laughs) Usually because I need to take my special flying pills. Keith is deathly afraid of flights. Uh, He goes on to say, I like my movies big, not small. I can't wait till they pick the 80s out of the hat. We can't wait for that either. Although we did pick one 80s film, which is Kiss of the Spider Woman. Don't know if you heard that one. Definitely worth a listen. Go back and... Well, maybe not. (laughs) Uh, So thank you. Thank you, Keith, for listening. I'm sure you're listening now. And I hope you enjoy the show. Keith is always listening. Keith is always ride or die. He's a jack of all trades. He's a train conductor and a police officer. (laughs) A party goer. (laughs) He's a police officer in like 90 student films. I don't think he made it into any of my films, though. I guess I, I wasn't good. I don't think I don't think I was good enough back then. You weren't one of the elites. No, no. All I all I did was just hear about how great you were while I was just trying to make myself into something. Just trying to make ends meet. <laughs> oh, well, so. I'm sorry to hear that, Bob. Well, if it's any consolation, look where look where we are now. I haven't made a film since I graduated, <laughs> and you've made three in like a year. It's been more than that, but it doesn't mean anything. The films have to be good to be an accomplishment. (laughs) Bob, you're being so humble. (laughs) Sit down. Be humble. Okay, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little Kendrick Lamar action. Didn't see that coming, did you? I didn't, but I'm glad that you started singing because it's time to jump into this musical, An American in Paris. Okay, so this is interesting. So the very beginning of the film actually brings me back into you as a filmmaker, Matt. Because it starts with a narrator? Yes. It actually, it starts with three narrators. It starts with the main character. Then he like somehow passes it along to the other character and then he narrates. And then it passes along to the other character and he narrates. And all I was thinking to myself while I'm suffering through all this narration that I don't care about because I haven't seen anything. I was like, wow. What a Matt DeGenero move. <laughs> because that's he's, literally all we said about you in film school. Is <laughs> like you, you were should. sitting there. He's just <laughs> so just just so you know what I heard is I heard I was sitting there going I was sitting there watching this unbearable opening and all I could think about was my partner in crime Matt. 
<laughs> That's what I heard. Thank you, Bob. It's just Thank you're you. you were famous and or I should say notorious in film school for all your movies having some sort of narration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but and the narration in this wasn't depressed enough. So there's a movie that we watched this week, and we're going to talk about it. It's called An American Werewolf in Paris. I'm sorry, American in Paris. There is a film There is a film called An American Werewolf in Paris made in 1997, not nominated for an Academy Award, so unfortunately we won't get to it on this show. So you're not thinking, Are you sure you're not thinking about An American Werewolf in London? No, no. There is that too, but there's also – that was like in the 80s, I think. There was, I guess, a remake or something. Maybe it's a combination of the two because there's a movie from 1997 called An American Werewolf in Paris starring Gene Kelly as the werewolf. (laughs) All right, Matt, why don't you uh, start us off by uh, describing this uh, wonderful 1951 musical. Meet Gene Kelly's Jerry Mulligan, a young American whose name literally translates to German do-over. Did you notice this? (laughs) <laughs> not at all i didn't even know what his name was i just called him gene when I first <laughs> yeah like his name is jerry mulligan he gets a second chance with his art career and he just came from fighting the germans in the second world war so definitely on purpose there but anyway he's a down on his luck white guy but don't get him confused with roman holidays joe bradley who is a young down on his luck white guy living in italy or seventh heavens chico who's a remarkable young down on his luck white guy living in france this is a completely <laughs> different <laughs> see this isn't fair matt i thought we talked about this these episodes were supposed to be standalone, so anyone could listen to them at any time. But now, <laughs> with all this backstory and context, <laughs> you're going to have to start from the beginning. I'm sorry, listener. I know you're listening to this episode. <laughs> you have to start from the beginning. I'll see okay. you in five hours after you start <laughs> listening to The Shape of Water. <laughs> okay, I promise, I promise I'm done with, uh, with that. So Mulligan is an artist who's living in this illusory post-World War II Paris over a small cafe where he hangs out with his best friend, who is a goofy sidekick with similar aspirations to our protagonist, but who should not be confused with Roman Holiday's Irving Radovich, who's a goofy sidekick with similar aspirations to our protagonist, or Seventh Heaven's street sweeper neighbor guy, who's a goofy sidekick with similar aspirations of being a street sweeper like our protagonist. I think we stumbled onto the winning formula, Matt. (laughs) It isn't long before Jerry falls in love with Leslie Karen's... Is it Lisa Beauvais? Yeah, he calls her Lisa in the film. Okay, because it's spelled L-I-S-E, so I don't know if it was Lise, but okay. I mean, he says Lisa in the film, yeah. Okay, well, you watched it five minutes ago, so you know you have no better than me. (laughs) I, I... I'm watching it right now. I'm not done with it yet. <laughs> I'm multitasking. You're only halfway through the dance sequence at the end. By the time we talk about the end, I'll have watched the end. But right now we can only talk about you'll the be, beginning. You'll be halfway through the sequel, An American Werewolf in Paris. <laughs> so it isn't long before Jerry falls in love with Lisa Bover, who is a vibrant young white girl in her debut role, who is desperate to escape her boring, unfulfilling life and have a little fun. A character that's definitely not like Roman Holiday's Anne, played by Audrey Hepburn in her debut role, or Seventh Heaven's Diane, played by Janet Gaynor in her debut role. But Jerry has a problem, Bob. A rich heiress who has agreed to help his artistic endeavors is also smitten with him, and to turn her down would be to risk giving up the success he has longed for. So he must choose whether to give in to her advances to help his career, or to risk it all to pursue the lovely Beauvais. But wait, because that's just way too simple. There has to be another twist. Beauvais is secretly engaged to Henry Borel, a man who is good friends with the goofy sidekick that we talked about earlier. But they don't know about each other. So will Jerry find out about Henry? Will Henry find out about Jerry? Will Jerry choose his artistic aspirations or the dame of his dreams? And that is the setup for An American in Paris. Kind of a little bit of an extra twist on the previous two movies that we watched. There's an extra person involved. <laughs> Good observation, Matt. And I, is it just me? Or I, I'm kind of sick of the whole love at first sight thing. Oh, I'm so sick of it. This was so bad. So they, okay. So first of all, 
before we talk about the love at first sight, can we talk about how? Sorry, aggressive... it's just I'm watching. It's that part's happening right now on the screen. <laughs> oh, they're singing. The, they're doing the love ballad right now. Oh, okay, <laughs> dude. Can we talk about how aggressive he is in the bar when he hits on her? He literally pulls her away from the table. So he basically his he just sees her and like is like she's hot and then pulls her from the table to dance with her and she's like I want to go back to my table now and he says in a minute <laughs> like won't let her go back so creepy yeah I I found that pretty interesting how he's going out with this super rich equally attractive if not more attractive woman who's like so into him and all it takes is just like him looking at this other girl for a second. It's like, oh, nope, this is the one. It's just... What's so strange is, so he's like hawking his art on the street. Like this is back when you didn't have Facebook blasting you with, hey, subscribe to my podcast and rate my podcast. It was like you had to pass them on the street for them to harass you. And the woman's like, oh, I love your art. I'm going to pay you all this money for it. Why don't you come back to my apartment? Blah, blah, blah. Doesn't pick up on any of these signals whatsoever. And, um... She kind of looks like an older woman. She was 24 years old and they made her up to look like she was so old. They had her hair up in a bun. They had her in these sort of drab. I mean, they were nice clothing. Oh, they were nice okay. outfits, but I, I she looked young to me. So, I guess in the script she was supposed to be a lot older and maybe that's why he wasn't interested in her. Maybe like she was a widow, so and she'd inherited all this money and I kind of got the impression that she was sort of they were trying to go for like an old and boring thing with her. And then Leslie Karen's character was supposed to be this young, vibrant, hot, jazzy, like flapper. Yeah, I, I just didn't get it. Yeah, she To me, she looked like a young, you know, attractive, interesting, rich woman. And I was like, okay, cool. He doesn't have to work anymore. He's got a sugar mama. That's why I work out. This is, this is the scenario I've been waiting for. And he, <laughs> he just doesn't care about it. Yeah, which is weird. It's not just that he didn't care about it. It was that he was too proud to accept charity from a, a woman. And she even says that he it's not an insult to his manhood that he should accept her help. But he he doesn't want to exchange the help for the sexual fate. Like, I don't think he wants to be involved with her sexually, even if it means that he's going to have a decent career. Yeah, which was a little interesting coming from, like, the starving artist that he is. And, like, it was just really, really bizarre to me. It, it took me a while to come around to his character because I would have played my cards a little differently in that scenario. Yeah, so he he's invited out with uh, the woman who is going to be helping him promote and sell his artwork. And that's when he meets Lisa and just is just not paying any attention to the conversation. He's like at a table with all these rich people who the woman's introducing him to. He's not paying any attention. He's ignoring them, blatantly looking in the opposite direction, and then just gets up and pulls Lisa's character into the dance floor and is like incredibly aggressive trying to get her to dance with him and go out with him. It was so uncomfortable for me. And it didn't get more comfortable because she clearly said that she wasn't interested in him many times before they actually went out. <laughs> yeah, because then he follows her to work the next day. Yeah, exactly. So. And he tricks one of her friends into giving him her phone number or address. Yeah, it was her phone number. It was just, it was all, I Very guess back stalkerish. then, that's more like persistent charm. <laughs> it was like, supposed to be charming. That was the weirdest part. Yeah, totally not, not the case today. This movie had a lot of like weird... I don't want to, I don't know if I should say sexist, but just like anti-woman theme going on. Oh yeah. I wrote, I wrote down some of the, uh, some of my favorite lines to that point. So when, <laughs> so when he gets to the, um, the heiress's apartment and he sees how rich she is, he says, so rich husband or rich father, <laughs> she res she responds by saying rich husband that he sold sunscreen in America. And then she said, there's a lot of red skin in America. I think that was sort of supposed to be racist. Yeah, that was weird. Although I think, wasn't it a father, not a husband? Oh, maybe. Maybe it was. Maybe yeah, it yeah. Was. Yeah, it was the father. Because it almost seemed like, it was like, okay, he is interested in her. And he's wondering if she's, you know, with this rich dude that she's married to, or if it's just her father and he has a chance. Oh, I didn't pick up on that at all. I don't think he was interested at all because as soon as she started hitting on him, she he even gave the money back. 
Like, he was so disgusted with her that he returned the money because he didn't want the charity. Exactly. That's what that's what really confused me is that at first he, he drops a line to kind of see where he, you know, where he's at. And then it changes completely from him being interested in her as so I thought, you know, that's a that's a good line right there to kind of figure it out, even though it's weirdly sexist. <laughs> well, it's interesting to this is a, this is a decent representation of what I consider to be a huge change in the moral zeitgeist where someone can act so aggressively and it be seen as charming and flash forward to today and we're both a little uncomfortable by it. Should a movie like this be judged through the lens of today? And does a person's actions in a movie from 70 years ago have to be seen through today's moral lens? Or can we, like, is it impossible to separate today from back then? Beep. Pass. I'm sorry. No, no, I definitely want to talk about this, but... We have already run out of time, Matt, so we will get to this because this is a really important subject, and I feel like this is going to come up again and again because um, there are more old movies than new movies awaiting us. Hopefully, next week, though, is a new movie. Matt, what decade are we are we watching? Okay, Bob, fingers crossed. Next week, the podcast goes to... <laughs> don't Don't even say it. Don't even say it. We have to pick a different decade. It's the 50s again. 1950s. Here we come again. <laughs> do we really want to do this or do we want to pick a different decade? No, it's it's the it's how it happens, Matt. We just got to <laughs> we just got to commit to our decisions. We can't let our our trusty viewers down. Okay, next week the podcast goes to 1950. The 1950s. <sighs> we'll be right back after this quick break. Fuck you, Bob. I said it right. I never want to hear a comment from you ever again. We're taking a quick break and we'll be right back. You have to say it again in 25 <laughs> I'm minutes. I'm so nervous. <laughs> Excuse me. Hey, Adam, you wouldn't have 300 francs on you, would you? I'm going to Montmartre and I need lunch money. Sorry, kid. Bought a poster stamp this morning and it broke me. Oh, please, allow me. No, 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 thanks. I never touch a guy unless I've known him at least 15 minutes. I've known him 15 years. Lend me 300. When I won't Welcome back to the podcast goes to American in Paris this week, 1950s movie, our second 1950s movie, and we have another one coming up next week, and I am definitely not bitter about it at all. I feel hungover, Matt. (laughs) So before we get back into the film, Bob, what are you watching now? I recently just started watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Have you seen this show? I've seen a couple of episodes. I thought they were funny, but not too funny. But I guess, I don't know. What do you think? This happens a lot with comedy shows with me is I'll like see a a trailer or like, you know, a clip and I'll be like, this is so stupid. And then I don't know. It was just on TV. I watched a random episode from a random season. I was like, this thing is hilarious. So I I started watching. I'm like a season and a half in. And I love it. I think it's I think it's so well done. I, I'm like, I was never a huge Andy Samberg fan or anything, and I just think every character in it. Oh my god, I love this show, dude. Isn't Tay Diggs in that? Terry Crews. Oh, ooh, yep. <laughs> That's who I'm thinking of. Is what kind of humor is it? Is it slapstick? Is it witty banter? What's the sort of? It's like kind of. I feel like it's kind of like those mockumentary shows, but it's not a mockumentary. It's like without the stupid testimonials. Oh, okay. So it's kind of similar to a Parks and Rec. I guess, but then again, I don't like those shows. So I don't know. I, I each character has like a very distinct. You know, they have their defined characteristics, and they're all just they're all just so funny. I I don't know. I love the show. And on top of that, I'm not a video game person at all. Are you, were you ever into video games? No, I was, I went through a phase where I was really big into um, Madden and MLB, the show when I was in high school. But other than that, I can't really get into the Call of Duties, the, all of those. I don't know. I have no idea what Fortnite is. Like Exactly. So yeah, but anyway, (laughs) I've been playing 
so much Fortnite, and literally the last video game that I've like played or owned was on my N64. <laughs> so this is a big oh, jump wow. for me. But we have an Xbox in my office, and someone downloaded Fortnite, and now like every chance I get, like while something's exporting or <laughs> transcoding or whatever, when I have a break, I've been playing this game, and I'm so bad at it, but it is so much fun. I'm not trying to be snooty. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the gameplay is like. I don't know what the concept is. I have no idea why everyone is so crazy about it. I mean, it's just a video game. I can't. I'll, but... I'll tell you why it's why everyone's crazy about it. It's because it's free. Oh. Yeah, so it's a free game, and I guess it just caught a lot of attention. It, it just got, you know, addicting for people. And since everyone can play it on any system for free, I think it just caught on. But it, How I'm, do they make money? Are there are there pay add-ons? Yeah, add you can pay for, like, a full version where there's different things you can do. This is going to sound really stupid, but you can, you can pay money to, like, give yourself better dance moves and <laughs> outfits. Like, I just... I just got killed by the Easter Bunny on Easter like a hundred times in a row, and that dude did nef- definitely didn't earn all that outfit. He <laughs> he paid a lot of money to become the Easter Bunny. <laughs> Man, well, from getting shot by the Easter Bunny to something really important that you beeped me on several minutes ago, did you have time to think about? my question repeat your question i think this is an important theme that we have to visit as we go on through the show and watch more and more movies from 1950 well i was thinking about this throughout watching this in fact i was thinking about it during seventh heaven but seventh heaven was so ridiculous that i didn't think it was an important thing to discuss but just the changing moral zeitgeist the idea that people acted in a way that we deem to be inappropriate by today's standards but which was not considered inappropriate at all by 1950 standards. In fact, maybe his behavior was seen as charming, as polite in some ways, endearing. And is in what way should we judge older art? Should we be able to judge it through how we perceive things today? Or is that an unfair assessment of work that was done a long time ago? Even though a lot of things in this movie creep me out, I still consider it a really, really great film. It's it's tough to judge things like that. I think you have to take it with a grain of salt. There are some things that are just different in certain time periods, but we also have to acknowledge that those things can't be reproduced today. She's like, I never want to see or talk to you again. And then he talks to her again. It's just something that you couldn't get away with now. That's just not, you know, that's not okay. That's restraining order worthy. But back then, I feel like something like that, it came across as, wow, he is so in love with her that he'll do anything to be with her. It's romantic. It's just not not romantic in today's terms. So it's, it's an interesting point. I think we're going to keep coming across this over and over again. Yeah, and I'm going to keep pointing it out. <laughs> yeah, and we should because part of... Part of your idea for this is revisiting things, and, you know, this is a film that won Best Picture. Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit. Um, This was a huge shock when this won Best Picture. It was a huge upset over Streetcar Named Desire. Stella! um, I hope we get it next week so I could just yell that and cut you off every single time. (laughs) You yelled it so loud last week that it echoed through my microphone. And (laughs) I was going to cut it out, but I decided to keep it in because it was so hilarious. I thought you just added reverb. That was natural. (laughs) That was natural. It was so perfect. And yes, for those of you who picked up on that, I do listen to each episode. Yeah, we care very much about our own show. I just like hearing your voice. Yeah, I just, I mute it when you talk, just so I can hear me. <laughs> Bob, this was seen as such a huge upset that newspaper writers were demanding recounts of the vote. This guy, Sidney Skulky, demanded a recount. And Bosley Crowther, who was a film reviewer, he said that it showed that the voters were so insensitive to the excellence of motion picture art that they voted for a frivolous musical over a powerful and pregnant tragedy. Yeah. So it's just good to know that people back then were just as pompous and full of shit as they are today. This film was more of like a fan favorite kind of movie. And things like this probably steered the Academy Awards into that downward spiral it went into for many, many years where it became more, you know, pretentious, artsy. And it, you know, if you were a popular movie, it wasn't, you know, 
wasn't as well respected. That's true. I, I will say this, though, and we can talk more about the Oscars, but I think the movie did have cultural importance because of when it came out. 1950 for the 19... Oh, no, 1951 for the 1952 Oscars, correct? And we're only a few years removed from World War II, and Paris is still in a state of disarray and mourning and Europe as a whole, and we're getting into the Korean War. So I think that a movie like this, which is a prime example of just this escapism and fantasy, was seen as a really important film at the time. And they did take some huge creative risks with... um, some of the set design and stuff like that too so i think that this was a deserving win what do you think i agree and i have seen streetcar named desire which is why i know the most important line of the film that i keep yelling out (laughs) it's like a big foreshadow for the episode three years from now when we get streetcar named desire you've been hearing him yell it for 150 episodes Uh, just the combination of everything i thought I thought the the music was incredible in this. I thought the vibrant colors versus, you know, Streetcar Named Desire was in black and white, if I'm correct. Right? Matt's just shaking his head like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's in black and white. And this was just beautifully vibrant colors. Every single frame in this film, they, like, strategically placed certain things that were different colors to just fill each, you know each aspect of the frame with all the different colors, it, the dancing, the music, the, the performance. I, I thought it was a really good movie. And yeah, there's yeah. some creepy undertones, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought the costumes were the best part and I know absolutely nothing about costume design. So I'm not going to pretend like I am some sort of expert and I'm also colorblind, red, green, colorblind. So sympathies to me, T's and P's. But um, the costumes in this were crazy, especially in that first scene, the embrace your the embraceable you segment. It's called where Henry is describing Lisa. Aha! And yeah, was, do and you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, she's dancing in like 90 different rooms, doing the most ridiculous things. Yeah, like she would be wearing this royal blue dress, dancing in like a flat black and white background. Then she'd be in a yellow dress, dancing against a blue background then she'd be in a gray background 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 dancing in black it was and it was changing with every new description of her i thought that was so cool i just think about that scene where it's all yellow and she's reading a book and just like doing flips and shit at the same time (laughs) while she's reading (laughs) now i'm just picturing that (laughs) yeah that was when she's like she's like oh she's a real crazy gal and then he says no she reads all the time and then it's her just doing splits (laughs) spreading her legs yeah they tried they wanted to cut that scene out the censors did and then they convinced they were able to convince them to keep it in that was seen as risque at the time they actually had censorship officials who were on the set with tape measures taking the length of female dancers skirts throughout the film well if you're gonna enforce a rule you might as well get mathematical (laughs) yeah so you know what this brings back a theme from from last week that we briefly talked about all the colors and like her in the yellow dress and the green room it really reminded me of la la land i feel like damien giselle is a one step ahead of us he's he's watching all these movies that we're (laughs) watching and talking about now and i think i think he's he must be super inspired by all these old films because he went back all the way to 1927 to gain inspiration for the end of his movie for, for seven, from Seventh Heaven. And I feel like a lot of things in this r- remind me of La La Land because I saw La La Land first. But I'm sure anyone who's seen <laughs> this movie watched La La Land, they probably are like, oh, this is American in Paris all over again. <laughs> yeah, Damien Chazelle actually came out and confessed. He said... Uh, An American in Paris is such a stunner that it was a movie we just pillaged. He used the word pillaged. It's an awesome example of how daring some of these old musicals really were. Um, So you were 100% accurate that he basically ripped a lot of ideas from An American in Paris. What the fuck is up with him watching all these movies that we're watching and becoming extremely successful and all we're doing with it is having this shitty podcast. <laughs> How dare you insult this podcast? You take that back. <laughs> so, and and what's sa- so sad is what happened to La La Land at the Oscars. 
I don't remember. What happened? It won Best Picture, right? <laughs> oh, did you fall asleep two seconds early? <laughs> so speaking of winning Best Picture, this did win Best Picture, but it also won several other awards, including um, Best Costume Design, which we talked about. Uh, Ori Kelly, Walter Plunkett, and Irene Sheriff. And Irene Sheriff was in charge only of designing the costumes for that 17-minute ballet sequence at the end, which we have not talked about yet, but which is one of the most talked about aspects of the film. Wait, it was only 17 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) So at the end of the movie, when all hope seems lost, our main character, Jerry, has a dream-like sequence which turns into a full-fledged ballet, and the music of the ballet is An American in Paris, which is the um, orchestral composition that was the inspiration behind the movie i guess some guy did um, a ballet with this music and they played the 17 minute american in paris audio for the ballet it was so jarring that after five minutes it wasn't over i was like oh this is gonna keep going because i could see that i had 20 minutes left in the movie and i was like okay so this is gonna be a nice five minute sequence and then we're gonna get to the conclusion to the story and then it just kept going And then I had 10 minutes left in the movie. Then I had five minutes left in the movie. And then I realized that this is the end of the movie. (laughs) It was it was incredible. (laughs) It was just so long, (laughs) so long and so ridiculous. And there were points where you thought it was going to end. And then it just the music gets loud again. (laughs) It was was too much. So, yeah, Irene designed Irene designed over 300 costumes for the sequence, which cost uh, over $450,000 to make. Yeah, and that it was scene's so, a whole movie. Yeah, but it was but it was extremely risky and expensive and experimental, which is why I ended up appreciating it. Basically, he dances through all of these famous French painters' artworks, and, you know, some of the backgrounds are just giant sketches, and some of them are these frozen fountains, and some of them... There's just hundreds of people in all these different colorful outfits. And I kept thinking this movie was made as a response to people migrating from the movie theaters to the TV sets. TVs were becoming extremely popular in 1950, 1951. And this was a movie experience. I can only imagine someone going to the theater and seeing this like color explosion. It, it, w- it would have been a great moment for uh, <laughs> if you needed to refill your drink or go to the bathroom. You, you just jump right back in and they're still singing and dancing. It would have been good for uh, for my Run P app. You know Run P? No. So there's an app that I have. It's called Run P. And when I go to the movies, it, it has every movie that's in theaters. And it tells me at what moments I can go to the bathroom, how long my break is. And a brief description of what I missed while I was in the bathroom. <laughs> oh man! So when do you when do you whip this app out? Do you whip it out before the movie so, so you know when to so go? So there's bad cell service in the theater I go to, so I have to update it before I go into the theater because I need the most current movies. And then there is a timer. So as soon as the the previews start, you set the timer so you know exactly when you can go. I mean, or it tells you exactly what happens right as you're allowed to go. And then, you know, I'm good because I get that huge slushy and you can refill them at the theater I go to. So <laughs> I knew you were a slushy man. I can just see it in your see it in your eyes that you're yeah. a slushy guy. So the I'm more a... the more bathroom breaks in a film, the better. <laughs> it's funny because you probably get the same thing every time you go, right? No, I change it up. Dude, I'm I'm a traditional man. I get my small popcorn and a bottle of water, and I always eat the popcorn before the movie starts, and that's it for the whole movie, and then I drink my water. I never go to the bathroom. I will wet my pants before I go to the bathroom during a movie. Yeah, see, I leave the theater. I get some more food, take a nice walk. <laughs> Yeah, what if it tells you you have like 10 minutes? Are you going to go like have a smoke outside and <laughs> call your mom? Gonna, and... Yeah, going to gonna order some hamburgers, <laughs> eat them outside <laughs> <Yeah>. the theater. <laughs> I mean, the theater is connected to a mall, so maybe I'll go shopping, you know. One film I saw last year didn't have any moments. It was, the, it was the only time this has ever happened. It didn't have any moments where it gave us a good window for a bathroom break, so I mentally prepared for that one. You know what movie that was? It was a, it was an Oscar film from this past year's Oscars. Get Out. Yep. 
<laughs> Get out. Interesting. They gave you one moment where you could kind of leave, but they recommended not leaving. <laughs> They're like, yeah, this is the best we can come up with. You just have to see the whole movie. There's there's no missing it. Oh, man. It, it was crazy. Uh, I'm hoping someday soon we get to talk about Get Out because I wasn't as crazy about it as everyone else was, but I still liked it. But I, I think there's a lot to discuss. Yeah. So a little more on the, the Oscar nominations. It was nominated for what? Eight? So that was incredible. What I found interesting is no acting nominations whatsoever. Is that a first for us? I think it is. I think it might be the first time that we didn't have a win. Although I guess Shape of Water, no one won. Yeah, but there are at least three nominations for that film. And it was super, I mean, this was a tough competition year. You know, actors going against Humphrey Bogart and Marlon Brando. But I, I just found that interesting that no acting nominations with a Best Picture win. Yeah, that is interesting. Although, what did you learn about Gene Kelly? Yeah, yeah, he won that honorary award, which he wasn't there to accept. What was that award for? Just being awesome? Pretty much. I, I think it was mainly for this film because he, if I remember correctly, choreographed the dance numbers. And these dance numbers, super impressive in this film. Between Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron, I just like such athletes to perform these dance numbers. So, side note about Leslie, she's still alive. Really? Yeah, she's still alive. And she was in Chocolat with Johnny Depp. You mean chocolate? <laughs> Chocolat. Chocolat. Yeah. It, I... it just like blew my mind. I consider this this era to just be separate. Like yeah, she's still she's gone. still acting. I'm looking at her IMDb right now, and everything she's been in recently is her playing some old French woman, <laughs> which she is right now. <laughs> she is old and French. <laughs> no, I was referencing uh, what was it? I love you, man. They talk no, about I chocolat, know. and Jason Segel's like, "You mean chocolate?" <laughs> what I found most interesting was Vincent Minnelli not taking home best director after directing that extravagant ballet number and taking all these creative risks. Yeah, I guess they just gave more credit for all that to Gene Kelly, and that's why he got that honorary award. What I found most interesting about Vincent Minnelli is that he often took his four-year-old daughter to the set, Liza Minnelli. <laughs> I think I saw Liza Minnelli perform the national anthem at like a tennis match one time. And then she broke out into a 17-minute ballet sequence inspired by <laughs> An American in Paris exactly. as an ode to, to Vincent. So speaking of Liza Minnelli, it is time for us to narrow down our decade into an Oscar year. I'm really don't not as how that's yeah. Related. You're so really. good at those transition points. Those segues. <laughs> yeah, that was terrible. Bob. And I'm no, just I'm just horrendous. trying to I'm just trying to keep up with you. <laughs> okay, well, let's figure out where we're headed next week. Next week, the podcast goes to 1956. All right, a little more recent. Okay, we're moving forward, so we will take a quick break. And we will come right back. I got rhythm. I got music. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. I got Daisy. I got in green pastures. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. Old man trouble. I don't mind him. You won't find him round my door. Vous comprenez ça? No! I got rhythm. I got music. I got Stella! Who could ask for anything more? Welcome back to the podcast goes to this week. The podcast goes to 1951, an American in Paris. You know, I find it interesting the titles in American in Paris, but there were a lot of Americans in Paris in this movie. <laughs> it, it should have been Americans in Paris. I think it's a more <laughs> accurate title. What is it with these movies that take place in different countries and there's just so many Americans there? I find that so strange. I wonder, should we should we make that our another uh, podcast trope? of ours that we just see if it's an american too, too, in another country yeah too many americans in this in that one country i mean <laughs> yeah it was just like i felt like every scene 
was like he was speaking English to Americans in the middle of Paris. It was so strange to me. Oh, yeah. There is that one scene where he is selling his artwork and some college student comes up to him and starts criticizing it. Yeah, exactly. I love, scene. I love that scene because if you that was one instance where if you placed it in a movie today, it would still be applicable. It was like, ah, these young college kids spending their third year of school in a foreign country. They think that they know everything and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, eh, that's kind of accurate. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> Just like shoot her off immediately. He said yeah. a good line. Like, you know, most people who are making art, whether it's films or music or, you know, physical paintings, you know, ask for criticism and stuff like that. And he's like the opposite. He's like, I don't welcome criticism. Doesn't do me any good. <laughs> he said something. I, I, it was a good line. I'm going to have to look it up because I'm going to start <laughs> start using it. Especially since yeah. I'm, I'm working on a film about an artist right now. Uh-oh. I, I felt, yeah, it was very interesting. This documentary that I've been traveling for is... Uh, is a is a doc about a painter so so it's interesting watching this film and seeing a fictionalized painter in the film and how clean this guy always was when he was painting meanwhile the guy i film is just like everything's just full of paint <laughs> just everywhere all over his hands this guy's like so clean and neat making his little paintings and <laughs> it's like paint's dirty dude oh yeah so one of the other things that i thought was funny about this movie outside of it being a bunch of Americans in Paris was something that you said earlier about how quickly everyone seems to fall in love in these movies. This is the third one in a row where I people mean, it's, are falling it's in liter- love. Like less- yeah, it's literal love at first sight because nothing about her, the, the character Lisa, nothing about her attracts him except just her face. Like he just sees her for an instant and he's in the middle of like this woman setting him up for life like he's a broke artist and this woman came out of nowhere and is trying to introduce him to all these people that are going to give him an art show and all these deals and sell his work and all he cares about is this woman that he literally saw for three seconds it just doesn't make any sense to me at all and then they meet at 9 p.m to go on their date and at 11 p.m because they actually say the time he has already sung his song love is here to stay (laughs) so literally Two hours into the date, and like a he minute it, after, he sings it to her on the dance floor, in the beginning when they first meet, too. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, that. yeah. He 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 jumps out with love, <laughs> saying love already. It's just like you literally know nothing about her, and then he complains the whole movie about how he knows nothing about her, and how he's also in love with her. This was another line that I really liked. He said, "With a binding like you got, people are gonna want to know what's in the book." And then two seconds later, he's singing, love is here to stay. (laughs) And did you notice the echo of their voices in that scene? (laughs) Like they were definitely inside during that scene. (laughs) So the river scene was done on a soundstage using a 100 foot uh, cyclorama, which is the large cloth backdrop that stretched around the soundstages back then. And the river was a fake river that was two inches deep and everything else was obviously set design. So they did not shoot anything off of the back lot. They shot absolutely everything on the MGM back lot. 44 sets were constructed for the movie. So very, yeah, and I mean, very it looked, expensive. It looked very, you know, set studio. I didn't actually believe that they were in France or anything like that the whole time. <laughs> and they weren't. It was, all, it was all in California anyway. Except maybe those opening shots were just B-roll of actual Paris. Yeah, I think they had a second unit take some B-roll. Yeah, it, it seemed like that. Um, cause that would have been a lot of work to recreate like the, the Arc de Triomphe and <laughs> all this, yeah. all this other stuff just for like an establishing shot when you never see the Arc de Triomphe in the film. <laughs> and then, I mean, it's almost his, his room in the beginning, in the very beginning when you finally, like they're done with their stupid Matt DeGennaro narration voiceover movie <laughs> tactics there. <laughs> I'm so used to saying it now. It's funny. His, like his whole room is like the most set, like set ever. It's almost like they're making fun of it. Like he he like pulls up his bed on a string and his bed starts rising before he even touches the like the pulley to pull it up. And then like all of his furniture is on wheels and he just wheels it out and like closes the doors and like everything like that. Just like a set would have been. But normally you don't show the wheels and all the other stuff. And it's it's almost like they just committed to it being a set and made his room 
like a literal set. So real quick before we move on, I know we talked a lot about how we were happy that this was shot in color and it was a very vibrant color palette that was used. So I did a little research on Technicolor. I'm not sure how much you knew about Technicolor. Not much. <laughs> so real quick. So Technicolor was um, the most widely used color process from 1922 to 1952 when Kodak released 35 millimeter color motion picture negative film, which negated the need to send film stock to Technicolor for their process. And um, the tech in Technicolor, I thought this was really cool. Do you know where it comes from? It comes from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where the founders um, Herbert Kalmus and Daniel Comstock earned their degrees before founding the company in Boston in 1914. So uh, they created the first. They created the two-color camera, which was red and green. So that's why a lot of movies in the 20s have this sort of red-green hue because that's so all that they had. Would it look black and white to you, Matt? That's mean. Um, <laughs> no, it looked like some sort of vomit of red and green that I can't discern the difference. That's okay. My uh, my movie today look like vomit too that's what that's what one critic said your film is vomit (laughs) and you didn't mention the cookbook once don't ever mention that film again i've been trying to erase that film from my memory i think next week we need to play a clip from it and then in 1932 they invented the three color camera and that was a much more complicated process where the light beam is split into thirds and filtered through various lenses to produce the color image. And then it had to go through a, a dye process, and it was very expensive. So that's why movies like Roman Holiday, they chose to shoot in black and white because you don't have to worry about any of this crap of combining all the films and the different shades and all that. So, um, But then um, the Kodak film sort of marked the beginning of the end for Technicolor, and The Godfather Part 2 was one of the last American films printed in Technicolor. I feel like movies today still have, like, Technicolor logo at the end of the credits. They must be doing something. They're up to no good. I think we're about to uncover something. Let's let's look into that. This is a little preview of next week. Next week we'll tell you just what Technicolor is up to in 2018 so tune in next week for more on the company before we wrap up the show and pick our movie for next week we have i saw a afi uh list of the greatest movie musicals of all time so i have the top five list here and let's see if you've seen some of these number five cabaret number four i'm shocked this is number four the sound of music thought it would be higher he was 16 going on 17 Actually, that's good. You have to do a little song for every one that I say. Well, I don't know any songs from Cabaret. All I know is I drink it sometimes. That's Cab... Never mind. (laughs) Number three, The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) Follow the other brick road. I was in The Wizard of Oz. Did you know that? Yeah, in my middle school play, I was in The Wizard of Oz. And I was, at the time, I guess I had my growth spurt earlier... I was the tallest person in the cast, and I was a munchkin. <laughs> and all I did was put on the munchkin voice and go, follow the other brick road. That's <laughs> fucking weird, man. <laughs> um, no, I did not know that very obscure fact about your <laughs> life, Bob. I'm We're shocked. We're off to see the wizard. <laughs> well, let's see if you were I in still this got one. It. I still got it. You still got it, you little munchkin, you. And just like that, my acting career died. some say he never recovered from episode six of the podcast goes to number two west side story and the number one greatest movie musical singing in the rain i'm singing in the rain singing in the rain gene kelly is that you (laughs) yes it's me matt here to tell you that your podcast is garbage (laughs) <laughs> watch my new movie american werewolf in paris start me as the werewolf Ow-oo! it's <laughs> raining in the sing okay <laughs> for more gene kelly impressions tune in next week on the podcast goes to tune in next week one of us whoever loses the bet will do the whole podcast as snoop dog <laughs> okay okay uh, <laughs> 
So, do you have any closing remarks on an American werewolf in uh, an American <laughs> in Paris? What what was that? <laughs> an American Paris? Yeah, I mean, so we didn't really talk about the end. So they're at this crazy ass black and white like rowdy dance party where people are literally jumping off balconies and being caught and like everyone's wild and crazy and then they have this breakup scene and then somehow we get breakup scene into like this 90 minute dance scene and then after the dance scene she gets out of the car and comes back to him oh yeah and what was that and not only that so the reason so the fiance overhears the breakup of gene kelly and uh lisa you'd think he'd be pissed but then when she comes back and gets out of the car, he's smiling. He's smiling up at at Jerry. Like, you go and you go get him, kid. That was the weird part for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. It just I don't know how anything was supposed to change in real life when the only scene between those two scenes was an imaginary dance number <laughs> where that picture that he drew of that place that they always meet magically blows perfectly back together. <laughs> <laughs> on the yeah. floor and then it turns into the set and they're dancing on it. it oh my god so the fiance must have in the car been been telling her that he overheard it and that she should go and be with him be with gene kelly how did it happen that quickly or i guess it wasn't that quickly because it took yeah, it was like an hour minutes. later <laughs> yeah i guess that any was... amount of time could have passed at that party while he was imagining that humongous dance number yeah oh, whatever god. it is it happens way too fast that they were going to get married and move to america together and in 15 minutes they decide <laughs> to call it all off and he's so cool with it after, yeah, he's a cool after guy. he was literally singing about how in love he was with her with <laughs> gene kelly's character uh, oh Mulligan. yeah they don't realize that they're singing Jerry about Mulligan. the same woman and they're both singing about how in love they are and they're singing about the same woman loved that scene yeah and then like a classic side character in a 50s movie he's just like well as long as the main character is happy i'm good take my wife and thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i'll go fuck myself and that was the ending and then it just says the end and fades such a cliche ending but maybe this was the birth of the cliche so maybe this was not cliche (laughs) i love how we since we keep getting old movies anyway i love how we're like this is cliche or is it yeah it's hard to tell since we're not going in chronological order if in 1937 there was some sort of american in paris love triangle that this movie ripped and we won't know that next week because next week we are in 1956 yeah 1956 (laughs) what was that 2017 oh great 2017 let's watch (laughs) get out the nominees for next week's podcast are giant around the world in 80 days the one with jackie chan (laughs) i think we can choose to watch that one if we want (laughs) Friendly Persuasion, The King and I, and The Ten Commandments. Oh, no. As a kid growing up, we owned The Ten Commandments on VHS, and I think it was like four tapes. Because I, I have the Titanic one also, which is two, and right next to it was The Ten Commandments, and it was one box with four tapes in it or something ridiculous. <laughs> Or if we get that, if we can watch the Jackie Chan Around the World in 80 Days, that means we can watch uh, History of the World Part 1 by Mel Brooks. I have 15, (laughs) 10 commandments. (laughs) I'll tell you right now what we're going to watch. Next week, the podcast goes to The King and I. I think we should rename the podcast that. Oh, yes. I like that. The King and Bob. (laughs) Um, I'm the king. Not at, not after you lose this bet that you've created, then you're gonna be the dog. Get ready Snoop. to listen to the podcast. Yeah, drop a like song. <laughs> it's like that sounded like if Snoop Dogg was a Munchkin from Wizard of Oz. All right, Bob. Sorry, Snoop, if you're listening. If you're Snoop-a-loop. bad bad boy, big upset. All right, Bob. Well, I hope to see you next week on another episode of the podcast. Goes to. I haven't been out with many people, and they're always friends. Honey, believe me, I'm no enemy. I don't know whether you're a girl of mystery or 
Just a still water that doesn't run deep. There's one thing I can tell you. Might have been around sooner. You'd know by now that you're very pretty. And I'm not making fun with you. Ah, love. 